On your journey through life, you are the hero. There are times, however, when it is beneficial to have an advisor to guide you along your path. Welcome to the Smart Money Simplified Podcast with Brent Mikosh, certified financial planner, certified investment management analyst, and co-founder of MP Advisors, LLC. In this podcast, Brent discusses some of the most important and interesting topics of the day as they relate to finance, the economy, and beyond. Now, on to the show. Hello, and welcome to Smart Money Simplified with Brent Mikosh. Brent, how are you? As always, Eric, I'm doing great. How about yourself? Well, the listening audience doesn't know this, but we can see each other. This is you're you're, you're looking great, man. I appreciate that, and I, I like the setup you got there at home. It's looking good too. Yeah, it's a very Joe Rogan esque garage esque type feeling, which Thank is cool. You. It's a little industrial, so that's good. Uh, we, <laughs> we, we we like that, but we didn't come here to talk about sets. We uh, you have a guest on the show today. Who'd you bring in? I do. I brought in Ashley Andrews. She's a chief executive officer at Tiny Twinkle, which is uh, a baby, like baby goods and clothing and things like that. Yeah, soft goods, you know, baby products company, mostly feeding accessories. But, you know, we dabble a little bit in in blankets and stuff like that. So uh, mainly just infant and toddler accessories, soft goods, plastics, textiles. I'm really excited to talk about this because we're. I've known I've known Ashley for a long time. She's good friends with my wife, so there's a lot of background there. Last time I saw you, you were rocking out to Jack White. <laughs> That's right. We <laughs> were at the Jack White, we're the Jack White concert, concert here together. in Phoenix, not that long ago. Yeah, it was um, fantastic. Yeah, he so, really does a great job on the guitar. Absolutely. So uh, a slightly different environment today, but I'm really excited to bring you in because I think that's uh, you know, what you do in your experience dealing really in business around the world, I think is one that that. I want to share with people. This is exciting. So, give me an idea of babies, baby goods. How, how, how do you and how do you get in this business? And tell me a little bit about the genesis of Tiny Twinkles. Okay, well, you know, for me, I just stumbled into this business. I happened to graduate with a degree in art history, and my twin, which I know you know, my sister, yep. um, she was in marketing, and I thought, well, what am I going to do with a with a degree in art history? So I tried to do entry level marketing, and I ended up working for a baby products company that's local here. Um, it was quite established, and I worked for them for a number of years. I started out doing entry level marketing, then I worked my way up doing key account sales. Then eventually I started doing all of their product development and sourcing. And I started going to China when I was 25. I'll be 38 this year. So I've been traveling there for a number of years now. So 13 years of doing business in China. 13 years of doing business in China. Yes, correct. When you started in this business pre the current company, and we'll get into how yeah. you got into that, what was what was it like when you first started heading overseas and going to China for to, to do business and get things produced. Were you always producing there? No, the company at the time that I, that I had worked for was doing most of their production in the U.S., um, but they had a big partnership with uh, Babies R Us. Um, they were a main supplier for Babies R Us after the lead scare in 2000. And, and was that 2008? I think it was 2008. So larger companies that were doing all of their sourcing in China were not able to supply um, because of the lead scare. And so the Babies R Us decided to go with a company that produced in the U.S., and that was the company that I worked for. When I took over the product development and sourcing for them, we had been pushed price-wise to move to China. It was no longer viable to do production in the U.S. So we had to start sourcing over, over in China. And I was part of the team, actually, the sole person that really moved it to a, a uh, facility that was actually functional and could duplicate the, the exact fabrication that we were looking to do for, for the, the signature product line that they, that they produced at the time. Um, I had a counterpart before me who had who had 
found kind of through what you would call a third party sourcing agent who had found some facilities over there that could produce. But I really worked directly with with um, Chinese nationals. So where were you producing in the U.S. first? I was actually here in Phoenix. So it was here in Phoenix. Yeah, I was here okay. in Phoenix in the industrial area off of Grand. Um, yeah, and it was a place called, I think it was called Spectrum, okay. if I remember correctly. Yeah. So yes, yeah, so it was a facility here and they were producing and and the fabric itself, for the most part, it, it depends. It had it was blended. Some of the fabric was sourced from China. Some of the fabric was sourced in the US. So, you know, you know, a lot of facilities now do that where they source the products overseas and then do the assembly and then it can still kind of count as made in the US. But yeah, I was part of part of moving that production over to China. And that was just by virtue of market necessity. Now, how much savings did you get from day one, changing your manufacturing from being here in the US to China? It was at least 40%. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Somewhere between 40, I would say 40 and 50. Delivered, like off the boat, 40%. Well, probably yes, similar to that. At least thirty, if you're if we're going in for full landed costs with all of the freight. But that dynamic has shifted so much of late. It's hard for me to backtrack and remember, you know, how how inexpensive freight and duty used to be. Yeah. <laughs> now, now I'm looking at exorbitant costs. Yeah, I just got a shipment in the other day for some plastic tableware for for kids made from polypropylene. I think my freight cost on that is about seventy six percent of the product, which is just whoa. It, Absorbent. Yeah, I definitely want to spend yeah. some time on that because people. Yeah, we can touch on that later. Yeah, yes. some people I've been talking to lately. I really want to dig into the supply yeah. chain and sort of this theme of reonshoring back to the U.S. Mm-hmm. But be, but before we get into that, sure. When um when you first start doing business over mm-hmm. there, was the cost savings? Was it labor? Was it where where was the savings coming from? It was a combination, definitely labor. Although over the years, labor has been steadily rising, um, but absolutely labor and absolutely materials. It was a combination of both. And it's not like here that the labor that we were paying back then that much less expensive, but the combination and the the acuity, the ability to actually sew to that to that level. And and I mean, it is like a machine working with China. They have it down to a science. You know, if you're working with a facility that knows what they're doing. So, it's tough to duplicate. So it's 2008. It's your first yeah. trip over there. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. What is it? Well, you, 2010, I think is actually my first trip over there. Okay. Yeah. But I started working at that company in 2008. Okay. Yeah. So 2010, you go to China for the first time. Yeah. You had never been over there before. No, I had not been over there. And you go over there as a one person team, essentially. Yes. I had at that time, my boss um, went with me and I believe another counterpart that I worked with and and then my boss's daughter. Um, and we all kind of went over together at a certain point. Then they left me and I was on my, I was on, I was on my own. They, they went to Shanghai and I think they went to one of the facilities and then I was off sourcing other factories. We were at that time we were doing apparel as well as, you know, some polyester stuff. So there were a couple of different facilities. So yeah, I ended up branching out on my own. And that was a little bit scary for me to begin with. But that being said, my stepmom is Thai, as you know. Yep. And so I had had some experience traveling in Asia. So I was kind of familiar with uh, being in more of a, you know, a third world country, um, because when I'm traveling to the factories, we are talking about very rural China. We're not, you know, we're not talking about like the bigger cities, um, although they are larger by our standard yeah. of cities. Um, and then beyond that, at the time, uh, the the guy that I was dating, his dad was a was a, um, a first officer for United, and he traveled internationally, flew internationally to China. And he told me, "Do not worry about it. You're going to be fine. They would not assault or hurt a U.S. tourist because the you know that's that's not on the initiative as far as what they want to present to the world." So he said, "I'd be very safe." So I kind of had that in my back pocket as as feeling comfortable. Now, from a business standpoint, how are you? Tr- how are you treated as a woman? 
being oh, over there. Oh, it's very interesting. Well, to be honest with you, they didn't expect me to be a woman, let alone <laughs> a woman that was 25 at the time. So they really thought I was going to be like a 40-year-old man. Um, and to be frank, they did not know how to deal with me. They they were very used to taking the male counterparts to go see prostitutes for, for entertainment. They, they're like, we don't know what to do with you. So what- I'm like, I guess we're going to have to be friends because we were similarly, you know, age, like everyone I was working with, you know, they're merchandisers or not, you know, you end up meeting the factory managers, but you have kind of a handler and account account manager. So they ended up, you know, we just ended up making more, you know, it was more of a peer group than, you know, uh, than not. But yeah, it was very interesting. <laughs> they even offered me a male prostitute if I would have liked Are you serious? <laughs> yeah. No, I'm dead serious. So, yeah. Okay. So the, so the stereotype that you do here. Yes. Oh, it's absolutely about true. Crazy Asian business, business uh-huh. too oh, much yeah. booze, too much everything else. Oh yeah. And that's, that's part of it too. They, they, um, luckily, you know, my liver's hewn of steel. I'm my dad's daughter, but yeah, <laughs> but they definitely, they want to drink you under the table and they like to do that. They like to have you drink as much liquor as possible. Um, because it, you know, stupefies you. They're able to negotiate and make better deals. So they they purposely have you go to these long dinners and they keep cheersing you and you're obligated to cheers back. You know, so it became, you know, I became kind of a parlor trick. And at the time <laughs> I was smoking cigarettes. So we just smoke and, <laughs> and drink. And, you know, I guess I, I was able to, to hold my own. But yeah, they were definitely shocked that I was a woman of my age, you know, doing what I was doing because they were used to men that were quite a bit older. Yeah, future reference yeah. in case anyone wants to know. <laughs> If you are, if to our listeners, if you're going to seal a Chinese business deal, what is the drink of choice over there? What are we drinking? Oh, well, they love that. You know, they love their Johnny Walker and okay. they like, uh, you know, they like Crown Royal and then the the rice wine, which is deadly. And it's served in like a thimble size, you know, glass that that is it's kind of like they're ever clearer. It's that's really poison. But yeah, something like that is good. And they typically, as you know, the water there is not great. So everything's neat. You know, so don't ask for ice. So so you manage despite the partying. Yes. Did you get a a deal done for manufacturing? Yes, I did. Yeah. And at the time, you know, our main the main supplier that that I ended up working with, who's now my business partner today. um, But back then we were just working together. Yeah, we both were in similar positions. We were young and cutting our teeth and trying to figure it out. We both were very supportive of each other. I provided a larger account for him and he had just started his factory. So he was really willing to go above and beyond and, and try and be helpful. Um, and, and similarly, he was able to guide me and my, you know, novice abilities of, of sourcing at that time and, you know, working with larger, larger customers, there's all kinds of, you know, test requirements and importation requirements that you know, I had to learn the ropes on the fly. So yeah. Let's talk about your Chinese partner a little bit. So, so you end up you're with this other company, yeah, and, and we'll get into when you, you know, spun yeah. off and did your own thing, yeah. But you're you, you're doing business now with this with this Chinese manufacturer, yeah. You mentioned you're one of his first contracts. He built yes. a factory. Yes. Who is this guy? Where do you get the money to build a factory? Well, he actually got a loan from the factory manager that he had worked for to start his first factory. Um, and as we've talked about him and I, um, as he's now achieved a, a, a great level of success, it's a dynamic that no longer exists. It's kind of like the American dream that I feel has escaped us here. There was a short period of time 
time where it was possible to build something up from relatively little. And, and yes, he took out, he took out a loan um, and was able to repay that loan from the factory manager who had mentored him. Um, and, and that's how we had the initial capital to, to create his factory. He came from a very rural part of China. I mean, the first time I went back there and visited his family, his dad was still coming off the rice paddy. They're still donkeys, oh, wow. like we're dirt roads, rural. He had to be bused into school, you know, three days a week. Yeah. So this guy was not like a, a, a party a, a party insider or something. He, no. was, he was a hustler. He was no, out there he was working. a hustler. Yeah. And that's why he said, you know, I don't know that that exists anymore. I don't think it's possible, you know, but I had this one opportunity and he did, he got a scholarship to go to high school because it was that rural and he worked his way, he worked his way through that. And now um, he's getting his master's degree at what is equivalent to the Harvard business school in, in, in China, outside of Shanghai. So it, he's a very intelligent, taught himself English, very intelligent. And he's a year younger than I am. So it's incredible. yeah, it is incredible. He is an, he has an incredible success story. So you, so you've established this relationship, yeah. you're manufacturing in China now. Yes. Um, you make a decision to go on your own. Yes. Tell me about that. Well, the decision to go on my own was, you know, twofold. I guess um, really it was spurned by my Chinese business partner. He, um, in his experience, you know, there's always two sides to every every story. But in his experience, he had had bad dealings with with a lot of his U.S. customers, where or even European customers. I shouldn't just you know segment it to that one you know nationality. But he had been kind of screwed over, and he wanted to have more protection for his factory. He wanted to to have a, 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 he wanted to protect his people that work there. He's always been very big on, you know, his employees and providing benefits. And, you know, since he crawled his way up from nothing, he really takes care of, of the people that, that work for, for us now. But, but yeah, that was important. And he wanted to make sure he had, he had a brand or something that he could rely on because too many times he would work on engineering a design. And then, you know, people would just be interested in the lowest, you know, cost and take it to another factory. So he came up with a Concept. He wanted to originally buy the company that I was working at, um, and that did not work out. So then, in the end, he said, "Well, I think I'd like to start my own my own brand, and specifically, you know, with the initiative to." remarket back into the Chinese domestic market because at that time they had just repealed the second child law. So you're right. anticipating that there would be a huge market for baby products and that if he had the protection of his own brand, he could support his team members um, and make sure that the factory wasn't going to be left in a lurch without, without production. Okay. Did, yeah. did that end up occurring? Did, was, did there end up being this big demand in China for for these products? No, unfortunately not. So that's why they've now done the, the repeal of the third, they've done the third child law, which just came out in August of, of last year, because it did not stimulate the, the birth rate as the Chinese government was hoping. So we did not see that. Um, but that was part of the original impetus for, for branching out and doing, you know, our own, our own brand. So I took all the knowledge base that I had from the previous company and um, yeah, our, and we've pivoted since then because, you know, the Chinese market itself has, has shifted. It was at one point a quite a large market for my previous company as we started to build up the that brand over there. Um, he had helped act as our distributor uh, in that capacity as well as factory. Um, so uh, there was a larger a larger market and it's kind of you know dwindled away and, and now even more so is American sentiment is you know the sentiment sure. towards America has, has shifted over there. So yeah so now we've changed our, our business model and focusing on wider net of you know international business. So when did you break off? What year was it you broke off to do your own thing? Uh, 2019. Okay. 
So yeah. pretty recently. Yeah, pretty recently. Mm-hmm. You're just in time for a lot of stuff happening. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, yes. It's like <laughs> I had one last trip to China in, in March of 2019 before. Yeah, before it, before, you know, everything went the way that it's gone with COVID, which, you know, it's that's the way it is. And you just have to pivot and, and try and work around it. Uh-huh. So 2019. Yeah. You go and you launch this brand. Yes. You have probably, um, tell me if I'm wrong, yeah. you probably have zero US customers. Well, let me say this. The brand had been launched prior to myself, um, because at the time, my Chinese counterpart had wanted to make sure I had security and and he wanted to set up the company so it was functioning for me. In the end, that was not beneficial at all because the company was in shambles. Um, So it was originally, it originally started up in 2017. Um, And so I came on two years later with like a huge mess of a product to clean up that was had issues and finances that were, you know, in just disarray. So, so when I came on, we did have, did I have any U S customers? Maybe, maybe I had like one or two small boutiques, but nothing, nothing that, that we could, you know, nothing to write home about. You know, I was, we had a, a, a warehouse system set up that, that was defunct and, and uh, yeah, it was, it was a mess. So it would have been better to start from scratch with absolutely nothing than, than the way that we did. Yeah. So how, and I know you make great stuff. I've yeah. got a 20 month old daughter at home yeah. and we've got some of your products in yeah. our house, but how do you, you know, it's a competitive marketplace. And my yeah. grandfather used to tell me, everybody can make something. The problem mm-hmm. is selling it. And that's so true. That is so true. So I, I've always been of the mindset to, you know, because I worked for a small company before and we're obviously very skeletal and small ourselves. The goal is to make something that is better than what's at market, but without having to completely reinvent the wheel because I, you don't want the burden of education because you have to have a huge marketing budget to, to educate the populace. So you want to come in with something that's slightly improved um, or even more so improved. And, and then I like to come in with a, with a little bit of a price, you know, undercut. So I want to look at what's popular at market make sure I can price my new product a little bit less than what's existent or match and then improve the quality so that you're having a better, better value for the, for the goods. Um, and then, yeah, that's, that's kind of been the, the, the development strategy for the, for the product. And so far it's worked for us. Now, that being said, you have to advertise and you have to get out there and you can talk about Amazon advertising, what we've done on there. Um, you know. I, yeah, I definitely want to touch on that. I, I, I read uh, Phil Robertson, yeah. you know, the Duck Dynasty guy, right? Yeah, okay. He, uh, in his book, he's talking, he's making these duck calls. Yeah. And all of a sudden, all these small shops he used to mm-hmm. sell to are now going out of business. Exactly. This is the late 70s because yeah. Walmart's coming in. Mm-hmm. He's trying to get to Walmart and no one's, you know, you, yeah. don't, you can't do, just do business with Walmart. He got one guy in one Walmart to yeah. basically buy like five from him. And yeah. then he took that purchase order. And all yeah. of a sudden now he's in like a hundred Walmarts. And then yeah. the headquarters in Arkansas calls him up and says, how the heck did you get in our stores? Yeah. And then that basically made Duck Dynasty because now that door was open. So tell me, how is it from your standpoint? Because you've got, for a product like yours, yeah. a lot of it, I'm guessing, is going through these massive retailers, whether it's a Walmart or an Amazon or, or some of these yeah, monsters. Yeah, we're mainly selling on, on Amazon now. We I've got a few products on, online on, on walmart.com and I've sold online at Bye Bye Baby to actually get the in-store placement uh, can be quite quite challenging. There is a, a route like you're talking about uh, with the retailers where sometimes they have regional managers that you can reach out to and they want to have pop-ups for, for local you know, suppliers. And that's one way in. If you show a good sell-through, then, then you can be you know, grandfathered in through the rest of the store. Um, but for us, even with, the, with our infrastructure, the way it's been, I, that has not been my main focus. My main focus has been scaling as efficiently as possible, which for me, that means selling online and internationally 
national distributors who have whole teams of people behind them that do the the marketing and, and the sales effort. So very easy. Our margins are better shipping directly from China. They do the importation, they handle the freight and they handle the marketing in their particular territories. And then here, we just have to deal with the behemoth of Amazon, which is really the main retailer here uh, to, to, to play with. I mean, that is the, that is the, the, the main, the main purchasing, you know, hub that, that U.S. consumers are, are utilizing. So I guess Amazon, and, and I, I actually really don't know about yeah. what it's like to market a product through the platform, but I'm guessing yes. anyone can sell something through Amazon. The well, question is, how do you get space when yeah. you search for an item? Well, it depends. I mean, Amazon does have certain requirements, you know, as far as if you're a brand holder, maybe versus reselling, you know, product that you've purchased from another brand. But myself as a manufacturer, I have certain requirements that, that I have to you know, hit as far as safety compliance and and the testing that came out with the CPSA, which was passed, you know, after, um, which is the Consumer Product Safety Improvement Act, which was passed uh, after that lead scare we talked about, you know, um, you have to, to do comprehensive testing to make sure the product's compliant. You need to have a certain level of insurance. That insurance can be quite difficult. That was a challenge for me to get. It's not necessarily always required, but when you start selling a certain amount of goods on Amazon, you have to have product liability insurance. Um, and you, I mean, as a manufacturer, you want to make sure your product's safe anyway. So it's, it's very important to have that. So not anyone can sell baby products, but if you're the brand, but otherwise potentially you can buy and set something up and then, then you would be able to, you know, utilize their tools to put your product out there at a lower price. And you have the, the capacity to advertise, although the advertising at that stage, you're not guaranteeing that your ads will actually generate sales for you. It might just generate sales for the brand. Um, you negotiate, you know, for the buy box, like I said, going down in, in price. You can set algorithms that automatically, you know, price it a penny or two pennies lower than the lowest price. And then the system just keeps, you know, fighting to, to, to give you that buy box. But without spending advertising dollars, Amazon gives you zero favor. You must pay to play. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Now, are they, and if you're not comfortable sharing these numbers, totally fine. Yeah. But what percentage of your US sales do you think goes direct from your website versus Amazon? Because I've seen your website. I can yeah. buy product right on your website. Yeah. Direct from the website is it's minuscule for us. Like, okay. yeah, it's, it's, it's quite small. I would say overall, just in general, our business, about 70% of our business is, is Amazon. But that's not, I mean, if, if I was looking at US sales, it, it'd be you know far greater. Most people, and we actually route people to Amazon from our website. Um, because in many ways it's, it's more of a guaranteed purchase, uh, and we charge freight on our website. So, you know, you're going to buy a, and our product is low priced. I mean, my average price point is, you know, around $10, $12. So you're going to pay $5 in freight or you're going to, you know, do prime on Amazon and get it shipped to you for free. So there you go. yeah, most people choose to choose to, to go through Amazon that way. And yeah, that is a challenge. Um, you know, touching back on the freight when you, when you are selling lower priced goods or, you know, kind of more utilitarian, small, you know, soft goods, it can be very challenging, you know, dealing with the fee structure for Amazon, the advertising cost, it, it all eats away at your margin. Much easier if you're doing strollers or larger, larger gear-based goods. So you're doing business in the EU also, right? Yes. Yes, I am. What is, you know, I think of the EU and I do think of phenomenal food safety laws. Oh yes. Um, oh my gosh. Yes. Yeah. Is it the same for your kind of product? Yes, it is. Is. Actually, I run two different 
types of product for my silicone, you know, feeding goods. I run two different grades. One one grade that has probably around a 30% less cost for the US market that meets all FDA requirements. And then I have to run a separate grade for EU and 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 the Middle East too. Middle East requires EU, EU standard. But but yes, and that that's that's a different grade of, of goods and it has to do with you know the curing time and and the type of material that that's utilized. But yes, the testing there is also quite a bit more expensive. It's importing into the EU is is interesting. You can import into you know, you hope you get to import into one of the countries that has, you know, less stringent because they all kind of share the the laws, but each country has different, slightly different, different rules. So if you import into one country, then that country can import into the rest of the EU with their documents. But if you import into a more stringent, comp- uh, you know, um, country, then you need to you need to meet all of those requirements. So it can be quite complicated to, to sell it. But yes, food requirement, food safety requirements, food contact requirements, all of it, you know, the the dyes that you need to use. I mean, our stuff for the US, uh, you know, for all my textile stuff is compliant. We're reach compliant. We, we, um, yeah, we actually have a, a lot of extra precautions that are not required in the US, but it's all it's all the same because the cost difference is not there. But when you get into some of the silicone materials, it it can make a big difference. Yeah. Yeah. Now you mentioned when you first started going to China, there was yeah. A lot of favorable attitude towards Americans. Yeah, said that changed. That has changed. Yes, it seems to have. It seems to have shifted. I think that there's there's something in the last couple of years that you know is is changing. You know the the sentiment towards American product is you know they're they're much more favorable towards um, European brands. Um, they used to really covet U.S. U.S. Um, I've noticed. I mean, we know with the Olympics that they were taking down the the English language, um, you know, text format for the translations for all of their road signs. And yeah, there's just there's been a a, a shift, um, and it's even to the point where now there are factory audits happening, according to my business partner, and I've heard this now from a couple of other people as well who are in manufacturing, where no longer is any particular factory allowed to have more than 51% of their business being exported to the US. So they're putting in some protectionism to make sure that if we have some kind of trade war happen, that, you know, their economy will be protected and that all of these factories will not be, you know, totally solely reliant on, on US goods. So some people have been turned away. Luckily, I have a partnership with my factory. So, you know, that's not that's not the, the case for me. I don't have to worry about that. But but yeah, that's that's new. That's a new that's a new dynamic. How recently has that been that that sentiment's changed? Uh, that's that was started earlier this year. So okay. this is relatively new. I'm gonna say probably in the last like three months or so. This is a very new, very new development. They're also uh, the factories themselves, as you know, you know, Amazon right now, probably I'm going to say 51% of their business is, is Chinese direct. Um, okay. A lot of my correspondence that I get from Amazon itself has Mandarin um, and, and they really actively offer many programs to help Chinese sellers, factories, and Chinese resellers sell on their platform. Um, so yeah, so they've got a lot of programs in place to 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 help with that. And and because Amazon has been so successful, now I'm hearing from you know people over in China that that they're also being incentivized at the factory level to sell uh, directly on Walmart's platform. As Walmart realizes that that's a that's a huge component of Amazon's Amazon's business. And you know Amazon did get in trouble with the FTC as far as the the review process, and has had to pull some of their their major you know customers off of there because 
because of false reviews, which is another whole whole issue to deal with. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think that could probably be a conversation in and of itself. Yeah, in and of itself. But yeah, so it's interesting. But yes, yeah. So there's there are now programs that we've heard for 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 Walmart selling directly and potentially even Target as they've started up their own kind of version of what Walmart has and 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 what what Amazon has, which is like a third party seller marketplace where you can go on and sell direct as a manufacturer, as opposed to in the past where everything was, was warehoused. And so I'd be, if I sold to Walmart, Walmart would pick it up and ship it from their warehouse. Now, you know, you can sell directly, you know, drop ship basically. So you may obviously sentiment in yeah. China has changed toward Americans. Yeah. Your consumers here in the yeah. U S have you, have, have you gotten any pushback about where you're manufacturing your products selling here in the U.S.? Does that come up at all? Well, only occasionally does it come up. And then if it does, and you know, I just kind of bat it down with the reality of that if you want to buy something at, at the price points that you're used to purchasing at, then it must be purchased overseas um, there, I, I, from a manufacturing standpoint. I, I do not believe that manufacturing will ever fully come back to, to the U.S. without the aid of AI or robotics, which is you know, definitely a, a path for, for, you know, for us to explore that being said, we need, you know, people who are technicians with that type of equipment, but like the straight cut. And so they're experiencing the same thing in China. Now they're having a tough time getting labor as, as they move into a middle-class consumer-based society from the industrialized, just That's, like us. Yeah. You gave me a great segue yeah. into my next question, which is, you know, China is looking at a, at a chart today showing the demographics and they're going to fall off a cliff here because mm-hmm. they just have not had enough kids. Yeah. Yes. You, know, you think a billion people, they're never going to run out of people. But the day of them being the low cost manufacturing hub, it's already, a, it's it's over, already right? yes, it's already going away. So yeah, we've already been looking at, at options of, you know, how to first off moving to, to, you know, back to, we moved to one of the factories back, or I should say set up a separate factory back to a more rural part, my, my business partner's hometown um, so that we could, we could have a more appealing labor situation because a lot of times in the past, people have moved to bigger cities um, and then they leave their families behind and they only have, if they're, we are not a dormitory facility, but if it is a dormitory facility, then they only go and see their families, you know, during Chinese new year or a couple holidays. So having it more in their, in their hometown where they can stay and work and then see their families on a, on a daily basis, that's more appealing. And there's been a sentiment, a worldwide sentiment, I'd say with COVID that has made people kind of reprioritize what's important in life for them. Um, and a lot of it is family and, and being around people that, that, you know, that you care about. So, so we've tried to do that, but then alternatively, we're constantly looking at, like I said before, AI or ro- robotic solutions of how are we going to deal with, with, um, you know, what's coming down the pipeline, which is, you know, a lack of labor. Yeah. So it's early 2020, you're starting yeah. your number two. Yeah. When did you first start getting any kind of rumblings that COVID was a real thing? Did you hear anything from your partner over there? Yes, I did. Oh, and I remember thinking, gosh, this will like, this is, it sounded like a dystopian, you know, movie. Like I'm like, this would never happen to us. So I heard about COVID actually one of my plastic manufacturers, his hometown is Wuyan. So he was there and it was, this is right around Chinese new year. And he said that he, you know, his name in Wuhan. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he, um, he was locked inside his house um, and literally locked inside the house where, and they, they did this again with that latest round of lockdowns where your door is taped um, and they come and the government delivers food and they have food couriers that deliver the food. They unseal the door and then seal it back up. So it's, you are truly on lockdown as you're not left to your own, you know, devices to, to make the, the proper choice. You know, yeah. you, you are, you're, you're in lockdown. 
so yeah so i think if i remember correctly i remember billy telling me that's my that's my partner's us name his real name is hafe but i remember him telling me that that jason who is my my counterpart that was in Muyan that that he was in lockdown and thinking, wow, this is insane. This is nothing that would ever happen in, in the US. And yeah. then of course we did have our own version of, of lockdown. Now, um, now your partner's in Shanghai, right? He's outside of Shanghai. Yes. It, 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 now you see some really dystopian stuff coming yeah. out of Shanghai right now. Oh yeah, now. absolutely. Is, is he in lockdown? Has he been in lockdown? He has been in lockdown. Yes, he has been in lockdown and the factory that's located outside has been in lockdown too. So it's um, it's been off and on. Definitely not Shanghai, the same as Shanghai proper, but uh, but yes, it's been, he's about, depending on travel, about an hour and a half, two hours outside. You know, it can be as long as, you know, four hours driving if if there's if there's bad traffic. But yeah, they've, they've had lockdowns there and it's, it seems to be, you know, pervasive and it, th- he's had it a couple of times. So, you know, we shut down, open back up for a week or so, and then shut back down. So what's that done for you getting goods? Well, it's been kind of, well, what we've done is what most people have decided to do, you know, with the, with the huge delays and production and freight, it's, we've just bulked up our orders so that we can kind of weather any, any storms that way. And, um, yeah, that's that's basically been the solution. It's like seeing it come down the pipeline or having, you know, firsthand knowledge of what's happening in China from my Chinese business partner, then we try and be extremely reactive and 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 get the goods. And and you know, like I said with the with the freight, even the freight, the shipment timelines have been so long. Now we've pivoted, even though I have very small volume wise goods, uh, we now make sure we're booking 20 foot or 40 foot containers so that we're able to, to get, uh, you know, faster sailings and, and clear customs more easily. Cause we've had LCL less than container load shipments be held up for, I, I had one shipment that took almost 120 days to deliver, which that's absurd. It used to just be 30 days, so, 30 to yeah, 30 days, you know, maybe, maybe 40 days. If you got, if you got caught with an x-ray exam. Is it improving, improving at all? Slightly, slightly improving. I'd say, you know, pivoting to full container shipments has definitely made a difference because they don't have to, you know, demand the container and, and have it go go through customs that way. I would say now we're probably looking at, you know, 45 to 60 days. It just depends. But the shutdowns, again, have caused issues where like we rerouted shipments that would typically go through, you know, the Shanghai port down to Ningbo because, you know, that one had not been shut down. So, yeah, just it, it yeah, it's it's an ever moving target. So the 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 most reliant, you know, kind of solution is is to just bulk up and and order more, which obviously is detrimental to your cash flow. But you no, have it, to it's, do it's it. It's kind of like the end of just yeah. in time. Yeah. Inventory. Oh yeah, there's no just in time inventory now. You have to plan out so much further in advance than than ever before. Yeah, which is why in the end, for me, you know, working on a distributor model for international sales ends up being so beneficial because they deal with all of that and yeah. they just order directly and we drop ship larger orders from the factory. Now, is there any, obviously your business partners in China, Mm -hmm. that's not going to change. Yeah. Is there, what you're seeing either for yourself or in the business, a a huge thing for any manufacturer right now, anybody that's got a manufactured good is is this idea of onshoring capacity back to the US. Mm -hmm. Are you seeing that? Are are the costs and the hassles becoming big enough in doing business over in China and the supply chain becoming fragile enough that the increased cost of doing it all here at home starts to pen out and make sense? I am not sure. Not for me personally. Um, you know, I I don't see the 
not for the types of goods that, that I'm working with. I mean, you know, there was a point where I've, I've talked to people who have advocated for maybe doing the production down in Mexico and, you know, because a lot of our, our, we use synthetic fabrics, you know, that production, a lot of times they're importing the fabrics anyways from, from China. So not, I would say not at this point, although the freight is becoming exorbitant. So, you know, I've, I have, I can't say that I've priced that out, but I don't even know that I would have a proper facility or facilities in, in, you know, in general, that that would that would make it justifiable. Beyond that, recutting all of the the molds that we utilize would be quite quite expensive to to do so. So once you're kind of up and running in that capacity, for me, it makes more sense. And and the and being adept, I mean, the they they are very very uh, you know detail oriented mm-hmm. and quite efficient, quite fast. You know, so yes. So what has caused this jump in freight costs? Well, I is, think is it just pure. Everybody wants their stuff over here, and there's just not available boats because yeah, all sitting there's offshore. not available containers. There's been a container shortage, so paying for the containers themselves. There's yeah, I'm sure there's fuel surcharges because we have all these boats that have been you know lagging and waiting in in, in the water. There's just increased demand with the without the ability to supply, which always you know makes the price increase. So, but it is exorbitant. Like a 20 foot container for me used to be around, I don't know, maybe two to 3000. That didn't include like inland freight delivery or anything. Cause we're obviously in Phoenix, but into, into Los Angeles or, or Long Beach. Now the same container is probably around 17,000. Wow. Yeah. That's massive. It's a massive, massive increase in, in freight costs. And then you couple that with the, with the added tariff, you know, um, charges and and you're really looking at at a cost of goods that have ballooned up, you know, and then a consumer base that that still is expectant beyond what's now happened with inflation before that, still expecting a, a price. Yeah, to pay yeah. nothing. Yeah. yeah. And but there's and and you've got a Chinese manufacturing slash seller base that is able to supply that. And that's I believe why you see such a shift in in the consumer sentiment. I mean, even the US consumer sentiment towards Chinese goods is, has changed. So many people have no problem buying a, a Chinese brand. Um, I don't even think they they bat an eye any longer, you know, especially the younger generation. They, sure. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Now, back real quick to to what's going on with the lockdowns over there. Yeah. Are are the Chinese people based on your relationships and who you're talking to? Because the one thing I look at this and it seems so dystopian. Yeah. I keep using that word. Yeah. Are they going to continue to put up with this? Do, do you think the political stability of the, of the Chinese Communist Party is remotely and you don't have to answer that question if you don't want to. But. No, I mean, for me personally, and what I what I would say is, you know, I yes, I think that that they will put up with it for 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 longer. This is a very touchy, you know, subject because we do not get into anything political. I, right. I have the feeling that you know, all of our communiques is monitored. So, you know, the Chinese government is quite invasive. So we are very careful to make any kind of comments about anything political. And so the sentiment from my business partner is typically, you know, that the government is doing the right thing. Um, So that is, that's kind of, you know, and maybe if you read between the lines, you can see that there are moments when that's, that's not exactly accurate, but we're, we're quite, you know, quite careful not to, not to discuss that, you know, unless we're in person and, you know, behind, behind closed those doors. But yeah, th- my personal feeling is like, they, that you know, no, there's not, I don't know that there's enough, that there's enough there at this stage. I don't know what would the tipping point would be though. However, you yeah. know, yeah, yeah, I'm not sure. So, so you're doing business here, you're located here in Arizona, Yes, but you're now also warehousing in Texas. Yes. I warehouse in Texas. That is true. My and brother-in-law lives in Texas and he runs my warehouse for me. He does a great job. 
So yeah. tell me, is is there any noticeable difference between doing business in Arizona and Texas? Oh, doing business in Texas is far more difficult than doing business in Arizona. Is it really? Now that's that surprises me. I wasn't expecting oh, that. Oh yeah. Answer. Oh Why? man. Okay. So I um I have two warehouses that I rent in 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 Texas. Um, and I am subject to property taxes as a renter, which is something that we're not used to here in Arizona. Oh wow. Okay. And it's based off of my inventory value, my asset value, my it, and I have to pay taxes. On your asset value in the warehouse. I did uh-huh. not know that. Yeah. Wow. It's a, I feel like Texas, they dupe you with the idea that you're not paying an income tax and then you have you know, so many more taxes. I, I was shocked that I have to pay property tax. And um, this will be my first year going through the process. So I can't tell you exactly what it's going to be, but um, it's, it's, it was shocking to me to receive, you know, notification that I needed that. Then beyond that, their sales tax um, is, is quite granular in comparison to what we have to deal with here. So it's probably three different layers of municipal taxes that you have to go through um, and you have to file the addresses. So it's like, they're really, they're really quite a bit more difficult to deal with in my opinion and doing doing business from working in in Arizona I could Arizona I could set up you know my website to to process our sales taxes I have to go in and manually do or have to get a subscription to Avalara or, or another program to to actually process sales tax for the minuscule amount of sales that I'm doing off our website you know because Amazon handles their uh, handles their sales tax like, I'm a I'm a raving bull here for Arizona yeah. I mean I, I I so that's actually yeah. It's great news because yeah. all right, to anyone that might be listening to this, it's thinking about where you want to relocate. You know, so many people go from California, they skip over Arizona because Texas is apparently Let's this promised about the property land. tax for renting. I was that's shocking. unbelievable. That's yeah. that's shocking. Okay. It is shocking. Yeah. Cool. So let me ask you this, and this is just real yeah. basic. You know, it's yeah. been everybody listening, it's been a really tough two plus years. Yes. You know, we had COVID, then we had uh that doesn't seem like it's going away. We've got the the issues with inflation now, Russia, Ukraine, all this bad news. Yes, yes. Are you optimistic as an entrepreneur? You know what? Gosh, that is tough to say. I feel optimistic with the brand that I have now because we've worked to build that foundation and we're on that upward crest. And it in some ways was a gift to to be launching at this you know, time because we weren't fully established. So I could take that downtime and do product development and, and pivot as a, as a startup, you know, as opposed to an established that then had to weather, you know, a huge depression. But in general, what I would say is in consumer products, I myself would like to not be in consumer products. I find it to be a very rough run, especially with the dynamic that that's, that's happening with, with China. It's very tough having a, having a brand. So I don't know, but in the end, I think, you know, we, we're trained to be consumers. So, so there's still, there's still, there's still hope. And I think the entrepreneurial spirit should still, should still exist. And, you know, I know other people in other businesses that, that are doing well. And yeah, I, I would say, yes, I'm still cautiously optimistic, but I would, I don't know that I myself start a consumer products brand now, if I didn't have a lot of financial backing sure. be, behind me. Yeah. Well, that means it's been so many body blows over the last couple of years. Yeah. yeah you almost, it's almost getting comical. Yeah, <laughs> you know? It's true. It's like, what is next? Yeah. What are we going to have next? Um, yeah. So l- 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 kind of a, a final question for you. Yeah. If, if you went back and you talked to your 2010 self, yeah, just getting into this business. Yeah. And you could you could tell Ashley in 2010, before that first trip to China. Yes. One thing, what would you what would you tell yourself? 
Oh gosh, I don't know. I mean, what would I tell myself? I guess I would tell myself to like take it a little bit easier. I was such a stress case, you know, about about doing. I've so I mean, so I put so much pressure on myself, but that's part of what makes you successful. Right. So you know, it's that it's that balance. But man, I don't know if I'd have many gray hairs today. <laughs> <laughs> you don't know. Well, that's because I just dyed them. So. <laughs> Well, this is yeah. awesome. Anything, anything else that you want to add before we wrap this up? I don't think so. This has been a real pleasure. Thank you. Absolutely. This, yeah. is, this has been awesome. I mean, I find these conversations to me are, are so yeah. fascinating. I want one, one last question yeah. for you. Actually. Sure. Any other, any planned trips to China or is it just so much up in the air because who uh, the heck knows what's happening? It's so much up in the air. I probably not, you know, not recently. I mean, I'm still... We'll see what's going on. We have a trade show planned for July, so next month, but I don't even think that that's still going on. I would not travel to that this year, but gosh, I hope I, I'm, I'm hopeful that I get the chance to go back. I really do love traveling to, to China. It's, it's amazing. And it's always amazing the next time you go over there each year, uh, exponential growth and, and moving forward. They're, they're definitely quite fast paced, you know, one year cash only next year, you know, credit cards and yeah. no credit cards anymore. Only Alipay and WeChat pay, you know, the Apple pay type stuff. That's like, they're just exponentially moving, moving more quickly in, in a forward progression technology wise. It's, you know, it's like, like us on, on, you know, on a hyperspeed in yeah. the United States. So yeah. Any doubt in your mind that they surpass us economically? No, I think they they will surpass us. I think we're I think we're going the European route my, myself. Yeah. What does that mean? Well, I think you know, um, you know Europe is less. They're they've they they're not as large of a consumer base as as we are. Um, they don't have. I mean, we'll always have probably defense and 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 our and our military might. Um, I don't see that that going away, but, but they're just not, they're just no longer a power in the, in the world economy, the way that they, they used to be. And so I see us kind of becoming more of that, you know, that, that, that type of system and, and other, I mean, other, other countries like China, you know, taking more of the, more of the, the, but then they'll fall the same way that we've fallen. It seems to be cyclical industrial revolution, consumer base, you're prominent. And then, and then you kind of slide into a, a almost a more socialist existence. Yeah. Right? yeah. So yeah, where you have to support, you know, the, the consumer base that it's, that has been perverted by, by this, you know, commercial structure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this has yeah. been awesome. Um, really thanks for carving time out of your day. I know you're super busy. I've been wanting to do this yeah. with you for a while. And uh, it's been an absolute pleasure yeah. digging into some of these stories with you. Well, great. Well, thank you so much. Absolutely. Well, this has been fantastic. Ashley, thank you so much for being on the show. I have a yeah. question if you don't mind me asking. Sure. And, and I think I'm older than you, so I, this may be a little out of date, but I was born in Taipei, Taiwan. And okay. when I was a kid, you know, if, if a teacher, one of my teachers found out the inevitable question would always be, Oh, do you have made in Taiwan on your foot? Uh, because <laughs> everything when I was a kid was made in Taiwan. Yes. Mm -hmm. What is your experience with, you know, with, with China and Taiwan? I mean, my birth certificate says Republic of China, because you know, at the time that was, it was part of that. And yes. I know that China is still trying to go and do their thing with Taiwan. I don't even want to speculate on that, but as far as manufacturing, is that something you ever explored or do you know where Taiwan is in this landscape compared to what China is doing? You know what? I cannot say I have not explored um, working in Taiwan, although I will say our fabric supplier is Taiwanese, um, but I do not order directly from, I, you know, the fabric supplier. That's something that the factory, mm -hmm. the factory does. Um, but I cannot say I've not explored myself looking into Taiwan. My assumption would be 
that they would be maybe perhaps similar to Korea, a little bit more expensive mm-hmm. um, or Japan. Japan's very protectionist that they do manufacturing still, but they, they're able to mostly supply their consumer base. Taiwan, I've, I've not looked into, and it may just be the nature of the goods. Um, it might not be within the wheelhouse of their production. For us, the, the, the pivot for most soft good type, you know, textile stuff would be, you know, going to Vietnam or Cambodia. You know, um, we've even attempted in the past, I had attempted India, but Taiwan, I, I can't say, I'm sorry, I can't, I can't provide, you know, a better answer to that. But yeah, no, I'm, I'm not sure. No, I appreciate the input. I was just curious because I just haven't seen a whole lot of those stickers lately. So. Yeah, no, I mean everything <laughs> is China now, but yeah. you know, I'm, and perhaps you're right. Maybe they maybe they've taken over and made it made in China, even if it is produced in in Taiwan. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? Yeah, All right, well, Brent, thank you so much for bringing Ashley on. Of course, always interesting subjects, and I, I know that the level of education and the level of history that you love to uh, talk about on the show shows how much you are, you know researching these things and, and reading about uh, these different things. Um, I know that folks out there are interested in working with people that have their finger on the pulse of information. So can you give your contact information now for any of the listeners that want to just have a chat with you? Definitely. Uh, our phone number here is 602-255-0555. Again, it's 602-255-0555. Email address is brentbrient.mikosh, M-E-K-O-S-H at RaymondJames.com. And these are the kind of conversations I love. That's why this podcast, Eric, doing this with you now for, you know, we're, we're, we're pushing into the second half, our second, our second half of the first year, I guess. Yeah. It's been so much fun because I absolutely love these conversations and look forward to talking about these topics with clients or anyone else that's interested. Yeah, absolutely. Again, thank you so much for your time. And of course, the last thank you always goes to you listening audience. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to the Smart Money Simplified Podcast with Brent Mikosh. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when Brent comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. This makes it really easy to share these podcasts with your friends and family. Again, thanks so much for listening today. For everyone at MP Advisors, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to live your best day every day, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Smart Money Simplified Podcast. Have any questions about topics covered during the show? Visit www.smartmoneysimplified.com or give us a call at 602-255-0555. Don't forget to click the follow button below to be notified when new episodes become available.